to Who Says, the podcast for mental health professionals who dare to ask, who says it has to be done this way? Join me in conversation with innovative mental health professionals who are thinking outside of the box and challenging the status quo. I'm Kalinta Blanche, your host and mental health OT with over a decade of experience. Through my years working for a clinic and in my own private practice, I've learned that there is no one-size-fits-all approach to mental health. It's time we challenge the norms, break free from the cookie-cutter methods, and embrace new horizons. If you find yourself standing at the crossroads wondering, who says it has to be done this way? Or daring to ask, who says I can't try something new? You've come to the right place. Get ready for eye-opening conversations, inspiring stories and innovative ideas from those who've also dared to ask, who says it has to be done this way? Let's jump right in. Tazneem is a mental health OT and sensory intelligence practitioner. She's also a wife and a mum of four children. She practices as an executive functioning coach and OT. Tazneem also offers coaching to health professionals in private practice through her company called the Private Practice Growth Club. And she runs an informative YouTube channel under the same name. I honestly don't know how she finds the time for everything. She's so passionate and multi-talented. She advocates for the OT profession in such a beautiful way. And I learned so much from her in our conversation. And I'm sure you will too. Hi and welcome everyone. Thank you so much for Tasneem. Tasneem Abrahams, our guest here today. And she's going to share a little bit about her professional journey and her way of doing things and the way that she was thinking outside of the box and challenging the status quo. So welcome. Welcome, Tasneem. Thank you so much for having me. It's so lovely to speak to you again after so long. <laughs> yeah, so Tasneem and I actually, I've been on her, um, it's a podcast youtube video youtube channel yeah youtube channel yes so i've been on hers and we actually have been on each other's radar for a little bit and then she reached out to me because we realized that we were doing a lot of the same work and had similar clients but we both kind of believe in collaboration over competition and that there's enough resources out there for everyone so we're just trying to spread the word on the way that we can build our profession and that we can help people out there Yes, absolutely. And I mean, I remember we had lots of conversations off camera um, around that exact topic um, because, you know, it's something that I'm really passionate about. It really bothers me what's happening in our professional space among each other. Um, And we've spoken at length about how a lot of that really comes from a scarcity mindset, which we can't really blame um, professionals in developing worlds or in a country like South Africa for having because, Um, It is really a shame how undervalued a profession, especially like occupational therapy is. And we do, reality is we do live in in an economy that's really struggling. So you can't blame people for having that scarcity mindset. It's just really sad when the way that that is expressed is actually at the detriment to the profession and also to your, your business growth, because it might, might sound counterintuitive, but being overly competitive in the space um, sometimes can actually uh, be, you know, count- counterproductive to your, to the growth of your practice. Yeah, absolutely. And I've also found that. So the more I've collaborated, the more I've met with people and especially people that have similar interests and that feel passionate about the same thing, that we can help and we can collaborate and we can even... Um, you know, that age old thing of we're not everyone's therapist, so we can cross refer. And there's, you know, I, I hear just saying, I really understand where the scarcity mindset is coming from, especially in a country like South Africa. But I also think there is a different way of doing things. And I love how we've also found each other in that. And it's mm. been such a pleasure watching you and what you've been doing. Um, so I'd love if you just maybe tell the audience a little bit about yourself and your professional journey. Yeah, so I think um, if I think how did I become an occupational therapist, I've always known that I've wanted to be in a helping profession. Um, I 
first wanted to be a teacher, then I wanted to be a pediatrician. Like this is now when I was very small. And I think because I didn't know there was such a thing as occupational therapy. Mm. Um, and I still remember I was at Wamba Girls High and one of the things that we were required to do was community service. This was long before, you know, all the private schools now have this thing where you must collect voluntary hours. This was long before this, that our school already implemented that back in my day. And we had to do um, community service hours. And I did it at Princess Alice Hospital in um, Cape Town, um, pediatric ward. I always thought I wanted to work with children, um, hence teacher and pediatrician. Um, And I remember once, one day walking down the long passage to the pediatric department and I spotted to the side, there were these two young um, students in green uniforms and they were busy with this child who, I, I didn't know it at the time, this child had cerebral palsy in his, you know, chair and things like that. And I was very curious what they were doing. And I went to go and speak to them and they said they were occupational therapists and they were explaining to me about play and all of this. And I was just like, from that moment on, I knew I wanted to be an occupational therapist. And interestingly enough, fast forward, I ended up not working in pediatrics and realizing that I actually didn't want to be in pediatrics. Um, And a big part of that was because I was in the first community service year. Uh, when allies were required oh, to do community I didn't know service. that. Okay. Yes, we were the first year to, to go into community service and I was placed at Lentegeer Psychiatric Hospital in Cape Town um, in the forensic ward, no doubt. Sure. <laughs> um, and I loved it. I loved being in mental health. So um, um, from there I had experience in like um, spinal cord rehab and neuro rehab. Um, I did work with children a little bit. So I, I've been a bit of a chameleon, chameleon OT, but I've always loved mental health. Um, and But I think where I really kind of came into my own as a therapist was when I was living in the UK because um, it obviously opened my eyes to a different way of doing things. And for the first time, I was able to practice with resources, <laughs> which was mm, very different. Yeah. Um, so it really like uh, allows you to be a bit more creative and innovative and, you know, in terms of your clinical process and the things you can dream up of doing because you're not limited by by resources. The team, working in a team was so different because the way multi, you know, the community settings, we don't have really, we've got community teams, but it's not set up the way it is in the UK because that is like community, community, um, uh, teams and that are very much driven by the NGO space. And yes, it's improved now where government has implemented more uh, multidisciplinary teams in communities, but it's far away from where it should be in terms of the resources allocated to those teams. Um, when, Which is sad if you think that primary health care should be like foundational to an economy mm. like ours. So when I was in the UK, I worked... Um, in this pilot project called the Oasis Project, which was so fascinating. We essentially, um, you know, they were already then doing work on how do we reduce hospital admissions and specifically in the target group of adults with borderline personality disorder because a lot of the times those individuals would be able to self-admit at any time to the hospital Um, And they wanted to move away from tertiary to more ground level work. And so there was an occupational therapist there, Eleanor Bigden. I can't find her now. And I'm not surprised she's not on social media because she was a complete total hippie. Like I'm talking about the type (laughs) that used to go and dance naked at Stonehenge when it was a full moon. That that was her. (laughs) So I'm not surprised she's not on social media. (laughs) Um, But anyway, she headed up the project where we weren't even called occupational therapists. We were called clinical specialists. And the idea was that it was a service user-led service. So Mm. they weren't called patients, they weren't even called clients, they were called service users. And these individuals, instead of going to hospitals, had to um, come into this project. They had a say, it was very democratic, they had a say in the activities we did and the therapeutic spaces we created. They, in fact, were part of the hiring recruitment process when I went for my interview. There were two service users who sat on the interview. Um, 
And they would actually, um, basically, it was a very collaborative space with the therapist. And then we also had a 24-hour helpline. So instead of going into hospital, they could call um, and speak to us on the phone and we could sort of talk them down from the um, crisis or help them implement the tools the psychologist had had helped with them. And so it was myself as uh, the other OT, a clinical psychologist, um, and then a mental health nurse. And then there was the team, the mental health, Spellthorn Community Mental Health Team was attached to it. They were in the same building. So they weren't part of the project, but they were in the same building. So we could feed off through them. So we would still sit in on the clinical meetings because our service users were part of their caseload and things like that. Um, so yeah, it was such a fascinating project and it really got me excited about this is what mental health should be, you know, mm-hmm. especially coming from my first working experience in a forensic hospital to experiencing mm-hmm. like the other end of what was possible. Um, yeah. And I think that just sort of cemented for me that this is what I wanted to do. I, I always want to, mm-hmm. want to be in, in mental health. Yeah. That sounds like such a fabulous experience to have early in your career. And just mm. as you say, like all the elements and what's that, what, what did they call you guys? Clinical specialists. Clinical specialists. And was that everyone? The psychologists, you? Yes. Yeah. We were all I love even that, like patients. breaking down of the hierarchy and service users, not patients. Um, mm. That's such a, yeah, a lovely foundational experience. But even like just the way that inter- interdisciplinary we were working, even so prior to that, I worked in an adult uh, learning disability community health community adult learning disability team so these were adults who you know often they have a learning disability and they get a key worker they get placed in like group homes and part of the ot role is to help them integrate by helping them with shopping budgeting all the life skills they need if they get a job how to catch the bus from there to their work and back again and so teaching them like how to basically engage in the occupations right to live independently um and the thing that i loved working in that community team was like we were all in this one office with the psychologist and the psychology student and the social worker and the nurse and everything and we had our team meetings and all of that but it really was like we worked together we say for example i had a, an old elderly client who had a learning disability and she was placed in a new home and I went to do an assessment about the shopping and budgeting. And then I would work hand in hand with the speech and language therapist to develop like the Macadon or the picture tools for like, you know, whatever solutions I created. And we would work together to create that solution or um, with the psychologist in the clinical specialist role. um, I had a client with really severe social anxiety. And so the psychologist would work on, you know, the CBT techniques of identifying when she's going to have a panic attack and her triggers and all of that. And I would actually go to the house and like do the graded exposure using the tools, the psychologist. Whereas I find in South Africa, it's so splintered. It's like almost like Mm. psychologists are, no, this is our work. You can't do us. And OTs are like, but we can also do that. Like instead of like, how can we be a team and work together where you do your bit and I do my bit. No psychologist wants to get out of the office and go to the shop with a client. And mm-hmm. us OTs are happy to do that. But in South Africa, we don't tend to practice like that. Even pediatric therapists, they either are school-based or they are doing everything in their rooms. When, mm-hmm. which, when, when Actually, if you think about OT, it is very contextual. Why mm-hmm. are not more OTs in private practice going out to do visits and going into homes and all of those things. Why aren't we doing those things? And a large part of the reason is because the way our health system is set up doesn't allow for that. It's very difficult to go into a school as an OT year. Whereas in the States, it's like normal for OTs to just be hanging around in schools, even if they are not government OTs, you know, it's normal to go for a visit to a school and sit and nobody has to know you're going for that particular child because there's mm. OTs all the time coming to the schools, but we yeah. don't, we aren't set up like that. Yeah. There's such, I think on the one hand, kind of res- resource challenges 
that the time it takes to go somewhere and to drive and you know if it's private pay or even if it's in government how much time do you have to actually go and do that Mm. and as you say the systems are just not set up like that but it is it's really hard that everyone is kind of in their silo Mm. and part of what I always try and do is really reach out and communicate and make sure you know like even where there's also a psychologist involved that even if we overlap that's okay as long as we're working collaboratively but not everyone wants to do that not like not everyone even replies to my messages and where it does the clients do so well where we have a good relationship and a good team but unfortunately that doesn't happen for everyone yeah Absolutely. And I think you hit a nail on the head when you mentioned in terms of private, um, you, in when it comes to pay. And unfortunately, uh, you know, we it is very sad how undervalued our profession is in South Africa. So if you look at, for example, I mean, you would know in mental health, the PMBs covers only OT only for inpatient, but not for outpatient. Yeah. Um, so they see us as part of inpatient, but then why would they not see the value in outpatient when it's actually an outpatient where the real work of getting back to life happens? You know what yeah. I mean? So, and like the funders will say, oh, our hands are tied. It comes from the CMS, all of those things. But what are we doing? And I think a big part of that is that I was actually just speaking to us. I do clinical supervision with a younger OT. I was saying to her, you know, um, I love research and things like that. And unfortunately, and this is not devaluing all the amazing qualitative research that has been done by OTs in South, South African OTs. Not at all. It's been really valuable research. But we do need to move away from this comfort zone of only doing qualitative because we think that what we do cannot be measured tangibly. So... Yeah. Unfortunately, we don't aren't doing enough quantitative research that shows actual numbers and figures and stats of what the impact of our service is on the burden of care or on outcomes or on um, the health benefits to different, the client in different conditions. And that is the reason why it's difficult for these people making up rules about funding for our profession, what are they? They can't base it on qualitative evidence. Mm. They have to base it that that's what they make the they make these rules up on numbers, actuaries, and things. That's those are the people that may they don't respond to qualitative research. Yeah, as you say, in the end, it's all about kind of numbers and return on investment. And even mm. myself, my master's research was qualitative, and the idea of doing quantitative research, I'm kind of like, <gasps> oh my word. But yeah, in the end, that is what's what's going to convince insurance companies and funders and everything. But I understand understand where it comes from, though, because South South Africa comes from this very recent tumultuous environment politically and socioeconomically and that. So we did need the qualitative research, Mm. you know, as we were emerging from that as a democratic society. So it was needed, it was necessary, but we're in a new age now. And it's now time for the new researchers to come out and say, enough with me, now we need to now prove our worth through numbers. And that is why in countries like America and that, they can do more quantitative and they have been doing more quantitative. Mm. So I just reposted on LinkedIn recently, there were two two researchers that I um, reposted, both from, um, from America. The one was an independent health research data um, research that found that occupational therapy was the only profession that reduced hospital admissions. Oh, that's incredible. And this wasn't even done by an OT, this research, right? So that's incredible. The second one that I reshared was from an OT where they ran a pilot project where they created a OT role in an acute emergency unit, which is not an area we think of OTs as operating in. Mm. So they did this pilot project and they did obviously service with surveys with the doctors and that. And there was a very low rate of knowing what OT is in the first place and think and even mm-hmm. having an opinion that we even could have, add any value. There was a very low opinion of what value we could add 
But by the end of the, I think it was a six-month-long pilot project, I could be mistaken, but by the end of the six-month pilot project, they actually converted that into a permanent role, OT role and hired somebody into that position. And like 86% of the doctors felt that OT made a massive positive contribution in the team in terms of improving um, the discharge rates and quality of, you know, what is what, what quality of service and the outcome of what they, their life-saving things that they did, the, the, mm. the, the long-term impact of the client going out back home. And because what the OT brought in those, those environments was the patient education, the, in that environment, the nurses are so busy with the acute stuff. The OTs came in and it was getting the patients back on their feet as quickly as possible, the psychosocial support, the pay, the family education, um, arranging, you know, assistive equipment and devices and all of that so that when they go home, they're all set up and ready to start living. And that mm. impact that they made was so tangible that they actually then created a role for OTs in those spaces. So that pilot project was done by an OT and they did the research, wrote it up and published it. And we don't see that stuff happening here in South Africa. Yeah. And it's actually so validating hearing that research that we know, or sometimes maybe we don't even believe that we make that bigger difference, but seeing that, as you say, quantitatively is Mm. validating for us and then motivating for these posts and to finance PMBs and things like that. Yeah, and this, I think that kind of links to this topic of um, challenging the status quo and growing and doing things slightly differently. And I'm wondering where in your career have you been faced with some of that, or where have you made to maybe make a decision that's against the grain or that challenges the way things always have been done? That's a tough one because I think I've always kind of just done things my own way. <laughs> okay. Um. Yeah, that's a tough one. I don't know. I don't really know. I think I would say that maybe um maybe the 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 fact that when I went into so when I eventually left my job at the school, my last job was at the at the high school. And when I left that job to start my own practice, um I think just in the way that I had envisioned what my practice was going to be and the, the client group that I decided to work in, that in itself was different to what OTs. What did you initially do. What did you think so, you were going to work in? No, so most OTs who work in the space of ADHD or neurodivergence work with children. Mm. And I decided to work with adults and teenagers. Um, so there are some that say, okay, they do work with teenagers also, but pri- pri- primarily the focus is on kids, you know, so it's like having the, the play equipment and the gross motor stuff and all of that stuff. Um, and there is a severe lack of OTs who are working with this group um, in the adult and teenage space. Um, so, and like, like normally you would say, oh, like you don't want others to join because you have all the business. But I'm like, please, can we have more OTs upskilling yes. themselves in executive functions and ADHD? And one thing that we what that OTs have to realize, and I got this question from one of my private practice growth academy members in one of our coaching calls, where she was saying, like, sometimes she thinks to herself when she looks at how much OTs can charge for services, and she's also in mental health, and she said, like, sometimes she thinks to herself, because somebody actually said to her, why don't you just become, I don't know what modality, it's an unregulated modality. Why don't, or craniosacral therapy or something. Uh, Why don't you just do that? You do the training and you can immediately start charging for it and people pay for it. And you don't have Mm. to worry about how you market and because you're not HPCSA worried about all of that Mm -hmm. stuff. Why don't you just do that instead of like stressing all about this and people don't know what, you know, like you can't even charge for it as an OT. And we had this discussion, I was saying to her, in the same way that there are lots of OTs that are doing life coaching courses and then leaving the profession entirely and becoming Yes, exactly. I, and yes. there's nothing wrong with that, but you have to ask yourself, and I said to her, because I know her, I know how she is, I said to her, if you look at, um, um, say for example, an OT like Adi Khair, amazing OT, she was, she was an amazing OT when she was an OT and she's now gone into life coaching mm-hmm. and she's now an amazing life coach, right? But what she can charge as a life coach is like, 
maybe four times what she can charge as an OT. But now you now if I now I say to her now if you look at her as an example, look at how she has to market herself and all of that stuff. She does it so well because it it aligns with who she is and her values and how she presents is able and willing to present herself to the world. Now, are you able to also present yourself that way, given that that is that category of, in that type of industry, you have to put yourself, you have to market yourself as a brand. She's like, no, 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 no. She doesn't want to do that. So like, so you see, it's not a simple answer of saying, okay, well, I want to earn money, so I must rather do that. But does that mm. align with how you want to shop in the world? If you, somebody would prefer to, be behind, you know, not not show your face and not like build a personal brand and you rather want to your profession to be front and center and you like have a bleeding heart and all of this stuff. I mean, it's easy to look at somebody like her and say, oh, look how much she's charging. But when it comes down to it, would are you willing to, are you going to have the mindset chops to charge that as well? Are you there yet? Because mm-hmm. if you're not there yet and you take that redirection, now you say you're going to be a life coach, but then you're still not charging that amount and you still can't market and you're still not going to get clients in. It's the exact same problem as you have as mm-hmm. being an OT and marketing your services. Mm-hmm. So there's absolutely there are... nothing wrong with people wanting to, to go into other fields. I have no problem with that at all. You just need to ask yourself, what is the reason you are doing it? Mm. And if you take the example of a life coach, there are so many life coaches out there. So as you say, it's going to take a lot of marketing, a lot of differentiating yourself in the industry. And Mm. I firmly believe that even as an OT, there are many ways that we can show up differently. We don't have to be Mm. these professionals that... um, don't show up as like you're showing up on YouTube. I'm showing up on Instagram. We're showing up on podcasts and it's slightly different. Obviously we have HPCSA constraints that maybe you don't as, as a life coach or something that isn't as regulated, Mm. but that we can still step forward because for instance, psychologists are doing it. They are stepping forward. And Anna-Marie Lombard, the sensory intelligence um, special therapist, she does it so beautifully. She is always slightly ahead of the curve and has built this brand that is Mm. a personal brand, but also around sensory intelligence. And we we just need to kind of be brave enough to do that. Mm. And studying something else or now becoming a life coach or whatever isn't going to change that we have to still take that step. We have to believe in ourselves enough because also for me, pricing is so intertwined with how much you believe you are valued. Mm. Yes. And a a different label on our business card is is not magically going to overcome that mindset for us. Yeah. But that's why I'm saying it all starts with, and the same reason, the same question that you ask when you start to, when you decide to open a private practice is the same question you have to ask yourself if you decide to leave the profession to do something else because you think you're going to be able to charge more. What is the reason? Are you running away from something or are you running towards something? If you are running towards that thing because you are drawn to it and you like this idea of working, because life coaching is a different thing entirely, right? And if you you like the whole um, concept of the, the coaching and being... Uh, walking alongside someone and coaching them to be their best and be their potential. And that is what you are drawn towards. And that's the reason you're doing it. Then go for it. So that's why I'm saying, if you look at somebody like Ardu, you can see that like she, her whole life story. And if you listen to her story, she's an amazing person and you can see why she's doing this. And that's why she's so effective in what she does. But if the reason you're going to it is because you're running away from the HPCSA and the rules and the ethics and it's too overwhelming because mm. I don't know what to do and what can I do and what can't I do and I'm going to get into trouble and can I charge this and there's too many like legislations and all of this and NHI is coming. If you're running away from that, that's why you're going to that. It's the wrong reason to be doing it. So then you need to rather yeah. address the problem. What is the problem that I need to fix here? How do I find the solution to that? Because if I really, really, really want to be an OT, because I actually like understanding the pathologies and working with people who have clinical problems and um, you know, working with a multidisciplinary team and making a difference for people who are really at the bottom, they're not yet ready to be mm-hmm. in that life coaching space. Yes. If that's where I feel called to do it, then rather than running away from it because of all these other challenges, how do I actually figure out how to overcome that to do what I'm really called to do? Mm. And so it always, always yeah. starts with 
I love that quote of like, wherever you go, there you are. So even when mm. I moved from working at Crescent Clinic into private practice, my supervisor at the time said to me, make very sure you know why you are making this decision. Yeah. Because who, who you are in the clinic is going to be who you are in private practice. And, you know, like the same stuff and the same mindset and the same challenges have come up. So I've had to overcome them anyways. Yeah. And I love that what you're saying, that foundation of, is it your values? Is it, what are you going towards rather than running away from? And mm. oh, I'm just so passionate about that, that client who isn't yet ready for something as high level as life coaching or something like that. And that is where we are actually unique, where not a lot of psychologists work with, a, a, let's say a lower functioning client or a client who isn't able to do the things yet that can you know, even like simple things, like for some of my clients, I, um, I'll check in with them right before a session that they remember about the session where psychologists wouldn't do that. But there are certain things that for some clients are barriers to entry into treatment. Mm. And we have to adjust, mm. adjust, we can't treat all our clients the same. And that's what I think is uniquely OT. Well, also, like, if you think of um, in, in the mental health space, right? Um, so I did some lots of CBT courses. Well, obviously, we're not cognitive behavioral therapists, but we can use it as a tool set. We need to understand the concepts. We use it as part of our process. And the thing is, if you look at it, now that I'm so heavily into executive functions and it's like everything just clicks for me, where it's like one of the um, executive functions, it's not a named executive function, the metacognition, but it's obviously mm-hmm. some the aspect of it. It's the thinking about your thinking. A core, a core feature of cognitive behavioral th- uh, therapy is the ability to think about your thinking in order to know how your thoughts affect your actions and behaviors, right? And your feelings. So if you don't have the executive functioning skill to yeah. even think about your thinking in the first place, you can go yes. talk to a psychologist until you're blue in the face. It's not going to help because you're not, you, it can help in terms of, just processing feelings but you're not going to change your thinking Mm. about your thinking because you don't have the capacity to even think about your thinking in the first place Mm. so that is a beautiful example i love that yeah and ot can almost prime somebody and that is why i'm like we shouldn't have this thing of like we're competing against each other's professions no i as an ot can help you as a psychologist get better outcomes with your clients Exactly. And because I can almost take those clients that are not yet ready or concurrently and prime them so that when they come into your space and talk about things, they know how to break down their thinking and think about their things in thinkings. And that's where you can come with your clinical skills to help impart that, that skill set again and help them guide them on that path so that they can have more functional thinking and behavior patterns. Um, and then they come Absolutely. back to me and we implement it in their day-to-day life in the way they're executing the activities. Yeah. And as you say, taking the context and the environment into consideration, it's just, I also, I just wish, like your wish, that there'd be more OTs in private practice and mental health and more OTs in that kind of teenager, adult ADHD, executive functioning space as well. Mm. But also you mentioned another thing with around the pricing, right? And this is something that also, I mean, I... I'm almost like preaching to myself because I know I know where it comes from. So when I when I'm faced with somebody who's struggling with pricing and and coming up with rates and that, I understand where their fears are coming from. And there's this mm-hmm. big misconception that the rates that have been set, like by the National Health, Health Price Reference Price List, that that is like what you must charge. It is a mm-hmm. guideline. In fact, yeah. there's a whole report I did. I can't even remember on which website. It was like a legal medical legal website where they were saying that there was even at one stage like a thing where the competition commission were involved because in a sense it's almost like price fixing if you just everyone must charge the same thing right so the the national health reference price list is meant to be a guideline and the funders then with their own actuaries and their own sums that they do will look at that guideline and base their own rates and that is why different funders will allocate different mm. rates. So Discovery will pay 500 Rand for 
for this service and then Bonitas will charge five will is willing to pay six hundred Rand for that service. Yeah. So how come they are allowed to um you know offer different reimbursement rates, but you think that you can't do that. So we are allowed to charge more than mm. what the medical aid rate is. And other professions in the medical space do that like without a blink of an eye. If I go Absolutely. to my gynae only mm-hmm. 50% of my consult is covered by Discovery. I have mm. to fork out the other 1,200 Rand yeah. for my consult. I went to right? Nagani this morning, and I th- I think maybe a quarter of what they charge was covered. Exactly. Other professionals do it, and we accept that other professionals do it. I didn't yeah. for a second think that there was anything strange yeah, so, going on. So we look at the, the rates, like say we, we download the Discovery rates list, and we look and we're like, oh, is that all we can charge? Well, like, no, that's mm-hmm. all that you will get from discovery. That doesn't mean that you just all have to charge. And then there's like, yes, but people don't have money. Like, yes, but you just said now that you're wanting to be a life coach who's going to charge exactly. twice that. And they can't claim any of that from medical aid yeah. anyway. So if they don't yeah. have funds to pay for OT, they're also not going to have funds. Then that's your wrong target audience. Yes, so that's exactly you it. Kinda, you know, so you kind of have to look and... The thing is, the the HBCSA rule is that you may not profiteer. You can make a profit. You just can't profiteer. In other words, you can't go and exploit your, mm. you know, the people you are serving. So mm. don't now go and be ridiculous and charge 10 times what the rate is because you're greedy for, for money. You have to mm. be realistic. So you have to take into account what are your business expenses? Mm. What is the cost what does it cost you to provide this service? And then make a decision on your rates based on that because you must make a profit in order to be sustainable. Mm. So if you decide that and it's a numbers game and you're making the decisions purely on the data and not on what you feel about it, then you are on the right track. Mm. And I so love that you're hammering on that point that it's a guideline because so Mm. many OTs, I think, feel like they're doing something wrong but the guideline is literally just a guideline. And as you say, if if you don't look at the data, if you don't look at what your expenses are, what it costs to actually run that service, to rent your rooms, you know, to have your website, all of that, you're going to burn out. You're going to have to work so hard to just cover your expenses. And then you are going to leave the profession. So then, mm. you know, from the beginning, charge something that feels good and that means that you can cover your expenses and that you can have enough at the end of the month. It's, yeah. yeah, Disney, my love, I love the way you think. And I love the way that, that you also go and look at these things. So you're not just saying it's a guideline. You actually read something about this. Mm. And I'm wondering if you can find it. I'll remind you that we can maybe link that even in the show notes. Because I think yeah. that'll be so good for others to see that it's not just you and me saying it's a guideline. It's really okay yeah, for them I, to Yeah, judge. I'll try and find that because it was on a medic. So this was when I was doing research into like the 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 rates and and things like that and i stumbled across this medical law website where they were talking about like the history of the national health reference price list where it comes from what the legislature was and all of that stuff and also to be aware that with nhi coming the the national health Health reference price list is going to change they're updating it Mm. um and and that is and then again hopping on this point of why we as ot's need to show the value of our profession through research because a lot of the decisions that they're going to make on the baskets of care and things like that is going to be based on what the evidence shows. So if we're not mm. showing evidence for why OD needs to be included. I mean, it's it's ridiculous that um, the mental health benefit for um, includes psychology and psychiatry and then clinical um, clinical social workers so social, social workers, workers exactly. who have but not us. A clinical counseling but not us mm. but a clinical counseling social worker and a psychologist is providing more or less the same service it's still counseling yeah. therapy right and it's so, so confusing for our clients they sit there and they don't understand why you know why is a psychologist covered but you are not it's yeah i hear what you're saying mm. it's important to do that research yeah mm. So as we come to the end, I'm wondering if you had any advice for a younger OT or mental health professional as they're starting out on their career. What would you say to encourage them? I would say to 
not close your, yourself off to to um, the possibility of, of you changing your mind. So it's mm. the same advice, whether you are a young OT or you are a young, any other profession. I have teenagers now. I have a matriculant and one in grade eight. And it's the same advice I give to young people when I was in the high school setting, all of those things, right? My grade eight daughter was saying to me that they only make subject choices in grade nine for grade 10. But already before the year is even halfway, the teachers are already like putting all this like um, this pressure on them about the magnitude of the decision that they have to make sure. about what decisions they're going to choose and like talking about how, you know, you need maths to do like all these things and to do X, Y profession. Now, my daughter's not good with maths. And I said to her, the minute you get to grade nine subject choices, you are dropping to mathlet. And she's like, yes, but my, my teacher, math teacher said you need maths to do X, Y, and Z. And I said to her, okay, listen to me now, right? Even if you need maths to get into, let's say, medicine, and you take maths, but you do, you struggle so much, it causes you so much stress and anxiety, brings all your marks down because you're so focused on doing maths, and you still get a mark that is not competitive with somebody who's been breezing through getting 90% for maths, you're still not going to get into that profession, right? Yeah, exactly. So that's, that's number one. So why put yourself through that stress? Rather, like, do things that you enjoy, that you're going. it's going to reduce your anxiety, that you're going to actually enjoy high school. That's number one. Number two, this is not a decision you have to make right now. Because she's basically saying to you that now in grade eight, before the year is even halfway up, you already have to decide what profession you're going to go into after high school. Sure. There's going to be jobs that's going to exist when you leave high school that doesn't exist today in the same way that there are jobs that exist now that didn't exist when I was in high school. You can't make that choice now. That's the second one. The third thing is, even if you are 100% sure what you want to do and you get to matric, you leave school, you go and do that, you can change your mind. You can go and study something halfway and then decide, actually, this is not for me. You can change your mind. In fact, you can finish the whole entire degree and go and work in that profession for five years and change your mind, right? Mm -hmm. So this, the same advice, I, my thing is, you should focus on personal growth, personal development, getting to know who you are, what you enjoy, what your values are, and follow the path along that route. The question of why are you doing this prevails for all stages. So for a young OT student or a young OT graduate, the, the advice is the same. Focus on your own personal and professional development that is aligned with what you value at that time. Knowing that there's a good chance as you grow and develop and your life changes, your values might change and then you can do something else. There is no decision you can make that is set in stone. Yes, changing your mind is going to be hard. I'm not saying it's going to be difficult, but it's not impossible to change roots entirely. I know people that in their 50s have gone a completely different route after working in a specific industry for all the years, and they are flourishing now. But maybe they weren't ready 50 years ago, um, or however many, 20 years ago, to enter that profession then because they weren't in that space then. So mm. the advice is really to keep yourself open, focus on your own growth and your own development. And don't say no to opportunities because you feel you're not good enough, you don't have the experience. You know, if some if an opportunity presents yourself to go into a space where you have no experience, you feel scared, but you are curious about it and you would like to learn Go into it with that mindset of I'm going there to learn and develop myself in that space. Make sure then that when you go into that space that you ensure the supports you need to develop in that way is there. So don't also just go blindly and, you know, that fake it till you make it story. You can fake it till you make it only if you have the right supports. So if somebody mm. presents you with an opportunity to, let's say, go into medical legal, but they throw you in the deep end, but they're not mentoring you. They're not showing you templates. They're not holding your hand. They're not giving you opportunity to go on courses. 
then then you are doing yourself a disservice and you're going to probably have a negative experience and never want to do it again. But if the same present, opportunity presents itself and you're really curious and you'd like to enter that space and it comes with, you know, supervision, mentorship, they'll show you the ropes, they'll teach you how to do it, they'll hold your hand for the first three months. They'll, and you can actually have the chance to develop a new skill and you see that you love it then go for it. Don't be scared because, oh, but I've never written a report before and I was so bad at it at varsity. It's completely different in the working world. So that yeah. would be my experience, my um, yeah. advice. Yeah, and you're so right. I think for from when you're starting out up to now, until probably when we've been practicing for 50 years, that's such good advice is that we can change our minds at any time. And I love that allowance for growth and you don't know what you don't know and you haven't necessarily been exposed to something that you know you would like or have the chance to build that skill or that experience and that jobs exist and I think even within OT things are changing Mm. so the way Mm. that OT is going to look 10 years from now 20 years from now we can't predict that so we we have to be willing to be flexible and and there's so much pressure as you say like on children I think to make these decisions as if they're going to be set in stone forever so Mm. coming from university you probably feel like oh my god there's so much pressure to make the right decision yeah, but the allowance yeah. for growth is so important. But on that on that note of you saying, you know, it's not just for young people this advice. Um, it's I, I also want to leave if there's anyone who listens to this who is further along, was more experienced, older, is that we also need to know that you can never stop learning, and we have to open our eyes to the reality that the world is changing, and we can't be left behind because we are afraid of technology or we don't want to, you know, that's not me, whatever. I'm not saying you must suddenly become an expert in AI and virtual reality and all of that. I'm not saying that. Stay abreast. Um, Mm. Learn at least the minimum. Attend courses or read up or be in the know of what is happening. The health space is becoming more technologically advanced and virtual Mm. Virtual spaces are making healthcare more accessible, which means that very target group that we say, oh, but we're a third world country. No, there are people who are doing that. Like in Cape Town, there's, you know, health clinics, doctors providing care at a fraction of the cost because they are leveraging technology, cutting edge technology. And so they are treating people in Hanover Park and all these, um, Mm. you know, Cape Flats areas, which you say, you know, it's a developing world. There's no space for that. No, you have to keep abreast of what is happening in the world in terms of that space. You don't have to go and learn how to use AI and become like a robotic expert. I'm not saying that. Just keep abreast of it. Don't sit here in your own little world in your therapy practice room and focus on just your kids and what you're doing and what you've been doing and been taught in varsity for the last 10 years. Mm. Read journals. Please, if you are an OT, can you please join Otaza if you can? I know you're not with Otaza, but <laughs> like, you should belong to Otaza because if in, if the only thing you get out of that is to keep you abreast of what's been happening with NHI and get the journal article and get the 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 you know the essay journal and and hear what's going on and get keep abreast of what's happening on a national level. Go onto LinkedIn, even if you don't post anything, but go and lurk there. Follow all these different things and read up what's happening. No, mm. that's how I know of that research because you have to keep abreast of the knowledge so that you can stay ahead of the curve. Otherwise, mm. you're going to be left behind. Well, it's, and it's funny what you're saying about Atasa because that's, I think, when I was a student, that's the reason I didn't join Atasa. So it was just mm. like, these are older OTs. They have no idea what's going on. Like no one's in private practice. I just had that idea of Atasa. And I love hearing mm. someone like you being part of that. And and that's motivating. That shows that we can, yeah, maybe that space has changed a bit from when how I remember it. Well, you have to you have to be the change you want to see, right? So if you if you feel that the Otaza is not representative enough, it it's changed a lot. I mean they the, the leadership of Ata is extremely dynamic, extremely forward thinking. And even like our oldest member is very like jacked up about what's happening in the world. Mm-hmm. Um, Prof. Devitt. So she's our emeritus. Oh, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She's lovely. And she's uh, uh, as much as she's uh, the senior to us, she is very jacked up. Like I feel so like un- unprepared when I'm in her presence. But the thing is, it's like, 
<laughs> if you younger people need to join and sort of take up leadership positions, volunteer in the different like um, um, chapter, like you know what do you call them the 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 different groups of Otaza, mm. like the Southern Gauteng the branches. Um, and if you want to see more of a certain thing, then you bring it in yourself or you request it through your membership or you, because you can have access, you can email and say, I'd like to know more about this. And Otaza makes note of those things. And within, I mean, you, mm. it's important to remember Otaza in extreme is, is completely voluntary, right? Everyone, there's only a handful of paid staff on there. And that's more like admin people, mm. whatever. Everybody else in Otaza, these are people who are not paid to put all this work in. And there's a lot of work. And, yeah. and, and in fact, it's, it's so I'm on Otaza at the moment, but I've, I've always been an Otaza member, but I'm actually not going to be on the committee anymore because it's so much work. But I will always be a member because I see what they do. And we don't mm-hmm. even realize we a lot of what we are allowed to pay. It's a lot more than we would have if it wasn't for Otaza because of the advocacy mm-hmm. they do. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, mm-hmm. and people complaining that this medical aid or whatever doesn't, on paying for that otaza will have like a meeting with this medical scheme and like say why is this happening what's and then they will have it resolved so um the money that you pay to be a member does pay as a profession as a whole even if you might not see it as an individual because maybe you don't have a specific need that you are Mm. asking them to address but as a profession as a whole it benefits all of us Mm. Yeah, thank you, Tasneem. Thanks for your time and all your passion and your insight. And if anyone is sitting here listening to you and wants to know either how to refer a client to you or want to know a bit more about the Private Practice Growth Club, where are the best spaces to find you? So my website, privatepracticegrowthclub.co.za. I am changing platforms um, soon, but it's quite a lengthy process. Um, but the domain will still be the same, so that's where you'll find the website. And then, of course, my YouTube channel. I think the main, I think the main thing, if you really want to get value out of what Private Practice Growth Club has to offer, it would be to join the Facebook group or to um, subscribe to the channel because that's where you get all the free information. And anything else I do from there will always be shared to one of those channels. So that would be the best place. Mm-hmm. So YouTube.com forward slash Private Practice Growth Club. Awesome, thank you, and I'll put the links in the notes as well. Okay, you're welcome. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks, Tazneem. Bye-bye.